to hear that your peers were being shot at and killed in the streets, it was deeply shocking. This is Cold War Conversations. If you're new here, you've come to the right place to listen to first-hand Cold War history accounts. Do make sure you follow us in your podcast app so that you don't miss out on future episodes. The 13th World Festival of Youth and Students was held in July 1989 in Pyongyang, the capital of North Korea. It was the largest international event staged in North Korea up until then. The event took four years of preparation by the North Korean government and they effectively spent a quarter of the country's yearly budget on it. It was declared the largest ever World Festival of Youth and Students with 22,000 people and 177 countries taking part. This event was the last festival held during the Cold War era as waves of unrest began to occur throughout Central and Eastern Europe later on in the year. Our guest today is Greg Elmer, who has directed the film The Canadian Delegation, which features longtime activist Chris Fraser, who was handed the task of assembling a Canadian delegation to North Korea. The film follows Fraser and a number of other delegates as they recount their participation in the festival as world events continue to unfold around them. Now, Cold War history is disappearing. However, a simple monthly donation will help keep this podcast on the air. Plus, you'll get a sought-after Cold War Conversations drinks coaster as a thank you and bask in the warm glow of knowing that you are helping to preserve Cold War history. Just go to coldwarconversations.com slash donate. If a financial contribution is not your cup of tea, then you can still help us by leaving written reviews wherever you listen to us, as well as sharing us on social media. We're on Twitter, at Cold War Pod, and just search for Cold War Conversations in Facebook. Today's episode is hosted by our co-host, Peter Ryan, and I'm delighted to welcome Greg Elmer to our Cold War Conversation. It was a festival that brought together um, youth and student groups uh, from around the world um, and different um, constituencies, usually student unions, student associations from different countries would organize uh, delegations that would attend these, um, these festivals that, again, would happen every four years. But what ended up happening particularly the 1950s, I believe it was with a festival that was held in Finland, I believe, that the festival started, kind of moved away from perhaps some of the anti-fascist and kind of peace, uh, peaceful uh, rhetoric and, and goals and agendas and slogans. And the festival started to become more aligned with the Soviet Union. So it got caught up in the Cold War, essentially festivals happened every four years and what's so fascinating about the festival or the festivals is that they really embody the politics of the time so there were festivals in the early 80s that were very much focused on questions of uh, south african apartheid for example prior to that there were festivals held in uh, a lot of east bloc um, capitals that were very much focused on issues of peace and and uh, nuclear war 
and the like. So, so I think that's what really captured my imagination from the beginning uh, when I started to think about a new project uh, about six or seven years ago. Um, is is that the festival in 1989 in in Pyongyang, uh, North Korea, or the DPRK as it's called, was really uh, probably the last Cold War, if you will, uh, festival. And so it really marked a, a turning point in the history of the festival, or, or at least the festival, uh, the festivals that uh, that got caught up in the Cold War rhetoric from the 50s onward. Greg, can you talk a little bit about why it was significant that this festival in particular was held in North Korea, in Pyongyang? What was different uh, markedly about this one versus the previous iterations? Well, as I just alluded to, a lot of the festivals in the 70s, um, in the 80s, were held in places like um, East Berlin, um, in, in, in Poland, in Romania, uh, and in Moscow. Um, so they really became uh, kind of uh, they became uh, festivals hosted uh, behind the so-called Iron Curtain, if you will, you know, that were really uh, Soviet Union uh, dominated, if you will. Um, but uh, by the late 1980s, you have the period of Glasnost that that emerged in the Soviet Union. Uh, you had the nuclear meltdown in Chernobyl. So you had a series of, of events that were happening in the Soviet sphere of influence or within the Soviet Union that really kept them quite busy uh, and at the same time were draining their financial resources. So the festival uh, became caught up in these uh, world events or particularly the events in the Soviet Union and a lot in the Soviet Union weren't willing or wasn't willing to host it uh, themselves. Um, a lot of, uh, of other uh, East European countries didn't have the cash and the time to do it. So uh, North Korea at the time was really engaged in a battle of wills uh, with the South um, and continues to be, uh, of course, uh, with, of course, the United States and, and, and the, uh, the Americans' allies, including Canada, of course. Um, and the, the issue that dominated, that predominated, and I think really led the North Koreans to want to host uh, the 1989 festival was the battle over who would host the 1988 Summer Olympics, which um, in common parlance is now referred to as the 1988 Seoul Summer Olympics. Um, so... Uh, prior to 1988, during this period of Glasnost, in this in this uh, political environment that I'm, that I'm kind of painting a picture of, the North Koreans um, thought, well, during this period of Glasnost, maybe now is the time to to approach uh, South Korea and vice uh, versa uh, to suggest that they should co-host the Olympic Games that were that were. Uh, scheduled for 1988 and so there was a series of conversations and and then of course those conversations turned into recriminations and ultimately uh the north um did not host any events and so the the 1989 world festival of youth and students if you see if you watch my film for example or if you see other clips that are hosted on youtube and elsewhere it looks like an olympic games there like the delegations walk into a stadium 
they are, they see themselves in the stadium in the stadium. So it was their, meaning the North Koreans, um, chance to kind of prove to the world and their uh, and the neighbors to the south that they could host just as successful uh, events as the 1988 Seoul Olympics were. And you know, Greg, something that really struck me in the documentary was when somebody alluded to the fact that the North Koreans had actually constructed a lot of facilities in anticipation of co-hosting the Olympic Games in 1988. And this was a way that they were able to make use of those resources, effectively sweating the assets. Yes, a tremendous amount of resources, including uh, an Olympic village, which is where the, the delegates stayed, um, swimming pool, Olympic size swimming pool, uh, cycling venue, and of course, uh, an absolutely ginormous uh, stadium that uh, I can't even remember, like well over 100,000 people could fit in the stadium. It's one of the largest uh, stadiums in the world. You know, so absolutely. Um, a couple of people that I spoke to were speculating on the the amount of money that was that went into building that infrastructure and and what kind of draw that had on the North Korean uh, economy. I subsequently read some political economists and historians. Uh, perspectives on whether or not and arguments about whether or not that giant expenditure uh, was a contributing factor to subsequent uh, severe economic um, problems in the north that led to drought and and a lot of a lot of deaths as well in North Korea yeah. about that stadium it's interesting because I believe based on another documentary I saw recently, it was the site of the world's largest professional wrestling show in history. (laughs) You know, everything is big. You know, the the North Koreans like to put on big, flashy events, and the 1989 festival uh, did not disappoint on that that count. No, that's, that's for sure. So one of the things that I wondered about as I was watching the documentary was... This happened in 1989. This took place 32 years ago. What prompted you to decide to make this documentary back in the, the late part of the 20-teens? In 1989, I was about 21 years old. Um, I, was, I was involved in student politics, uh, first out in, in Vancouver and then um, here in Toronto. And also, I spent, I spent some time I think I came into a little bit of money. I think I overlapped in jobs and was paid twice for a number of weeks, which was uh, really nice for a 21-year-old to have a couple thousand dollars in in their pocket. And, um, you know, at the time I was watching television and watching news like many of us were. And there was some really crazy stuff going on in places like Berlin and the wall was coming down. And, and uh, again, the world was changing, right? If, if, if we use the, 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 that kind of uh, Western lens and, and look at uh, the, the, um, the Cold War as, as a defining period of my generation, that was just captivating for me. Uh, I had the resources, I had the time, and I traveled throughout um, uh, Germany, East Germany, um, straight through to a number of other Eastern um, uh, European countries as well. So I uh, so I've always been fascinated, I think, because of that that trip. At the same time, uh, like earlier that summer when the festival was going on, uh, I was busy um, with work, but I had heard through people that I worked uh, with that 
that this festival was being organized for whatever reason i didn't go and i think in retrospect given my experiences in east eastern um, europe and a lot of the the resurgence in interest over north korean politics as being one of the last few remnants if you will national examples of uh, of the cold war um, I started to strike up conversations with some people I knew, some friends, some student kind of uh, activist friends and student union friends. And uh, and when they started to tell me stories, I just thought, okay, this this is just too much to pass up. And uh, and I started to research and and uh, produce the film. And it's a really good thing that you did because it brings uh, a side of the Cold War out that I I think has been quite frankly, underreported, and that's perhaps some of the youth activism going on in Western countries like Canada. Maybe you could talk a little bit about the Canadian delegation itself. Uh, what type of a mix of people was it? I, I was struck immediately by the fact that you, as one of the interviewees stated, you had people all the way from the Young Communist League to the Young Conservatives, which I, I found incredibly fascinating that there was that mix, because around that time, I personally was a member of the Young Conservatives at the at the university I attended, and it's it, it, it immediately impacted me from the standpoint that this wasn't just a, a group of perhaps people with a certain political orientation. You had voices from across the spectrum. Yes, that's true. I think the, that the Canadian Federation of Students were, were probably the, one of the main catalysts for organizing um, a delegation. Uh, as, I, as I referred to earlier, there, there had been previous delegations that had been organized by various uh, uh, entities and associations across Canada. Sometimes it was, um, it was uh, farmers' groups, sometimes it was trade unions, um, sometimes it was the Communist Party, and sometimes it was um, student union groups. So it seemed to be that in, in the kind of research that I'd done, was always a, a coalition of groups. Now, 1989 is is a is a particularly interesting, you know, coalition of groups uh, that 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 put together uh, that constituted the delegation, if you will. There were a lot of there was um, there were a lot of interesting, uh, complicated things going on in Quebec uh, amongst uh, student organizations. I think the Canadian Federation of Students and, and student groups outside of Quebec were really uh, interested in bringing um, Quebec students into a national into the national organization, having more power at that time. This is, of course, a time where, where as you know yourself, the Conservative Party was in, was in power, had been in power in Ottawa. So there was a there was a, a stronger, I think, push to have a national voice among amongst the youth and students across Canada. It's not as pronounced uh, today, or hasn't been for a number of years, if not decades, in in my opinion. And anyway, so that that was kind of the the mood at the time. There was also, I think, some of the first forms of um, of of uh, of what we what we're seeing today as well. Uh, on uh, of indigenous activism, particularly indigenous student activism, um, and I think that came out of this is from out of the, the mid '80s onwards, uh, out of a wave of indigenous youth um, entering the university system like we had not seen before in Canada. 
Um, and the Mulroney government was at first quite supportive, but started to pull back some support for Indigenous students. And so that sparked uh, a lot of protests and a lot of interest amongst Indigenous uh, communities and students in particular across Canada. So they were deeply involved in organizing and participating in the Canadian delegation. And then um, the last major organization that were played a pivotal part was the uh, Young Communist Party of Canada. Just like all other related organizations around the world, and of course, most importantly, in the Soviet Union, were facing an identity crisis. They're losing their funding, they're losing their membership, they're losing their, their identity. So, so you can see there is an agenda on the part of Indigenous students. There is an agenda on the part of the, the, the Canadian Federation of Students and, and student activists. There was an agenda on the part of uh, Quebecois students. Um, and the Young Communist League also had an agenda, right? Their agenda was to refashion themselves. And I think they played a very important role in kind of solidifying this kind of, uh, if you will, if I can borrow a phrase, this kind of rainbow coalition of students and youth from uh, across, um, across Canada. How big was the delegation? How many people from Canada attended? Roughly around 75. I will say, watching the movie, looking at the the, I think they had a couple of buses that were taking the Canadian delegation back and forth between the events. So, you know, I would say probably seventy five was a good estimate. It, it it wasn't a small group of people. When I heard the delegate from Vancouver talking about their trajectory to get from Vancouver to Pyongyang. I actually felt exhausted just listening to the description about all the stops that they need. I, I think it was they went to Vancouver to Montreal, Montreal to Gander, Newfoundland, Gander, Newfoundland to Moscow, a couple of more stops uh, somewhere in the Soviet Union before they got to Pyongyang. But I have to say that the description of the, the flights going from Moscow into Pyongyang with people sitting on the floor of the planes was literally the stuff of uh, like a Chevy Chase vacation movie. <laughs> that's what that's what we talk about it uh, there's, there's a couple there's a couple things uh yeah that that se- that sequence actually uh came to get like I, I don't even know if i needed to edit that sequence together it it kind of edited itself and the and it was so funny because each of the delegates that i ended up um interviewing that were included in the film it was like they were they were finishing each other's sentences Right. And that's how, when you watch the film, that's how it kind of rolls out. But it- Hi, this is Rhonda in Virginia, and I support Cold War conversations because I think the work that Ian is doing is critically important. I think it's vital to record the firsthand accounts of people who lived and experienced the Cold War uh, because it illustrates history in a way that a book never can. So thank you so much for the podcast. It's my favorite podcast, and I look forward to it every week. To be like Rhonda and help to preserve these incredible stories of the Cold War, as a monthly or annual supporter, you'll be able to listen ad-free, you'll become one of our community, get the sought-after Cold War Conversations drinks coaster as a thank you, and you'll bask in the warm glow of knowing that you're helping to preserve Cold War history. Just go to coldwarconversations.com slash donate to find out more. It's like they were, it's like they huddled together the day before and, and swapped notes about what they were going to say about the trip there because <laughs> it was so fresh. 
But for me, it was really, you, you also get what I tried to capture in, in that sequence when they're traveling, as you said, through all these different legs with all these different stops is the, um, the, the, the youthful energy, of course, the anticipation, the excitement, but also um, the exhaustion, the the bizarreness, the you know they're going down a rabbit hole almost. So, so I tried to kind of capture all these different stages, uh, emotional stages, uh, before they even entered into kind of North Korean airspace, right? So, but I think that they they got a, a sense of what was going, what they were in for when they stopped in Gander, and the reason why most people, almost everyone today, stops in Gander is um, to refuel. Right, Um, particularly kind of chartered or small uh, jets, of course, uh, corporate jets. But uh, they they were forced to stop in Gander because that was the only place that uh, that the government would permit um, flights that were intended to go to or through the Soviet Union. So it was a security provision. Upon arrival in North Korea for the festival, after what looked like, uh, quite frankly, a planes, trains, and automobiles trip, and it looked like, frankly, a lot of fun. I, I remember they were talking about how I think it was the Cuban delegation brought out uh, the musical instruments and, and effectively ran a, a party for for the the flight into North Korea. Did you get a sense about how the delegates? saw or, or or felt about the accommodation, the food, the reception that they got once they arrived in Pyongyang? I don't think people really talk much about the, the food or the uh, the accommodation. Um, you know, I got a sense of it. it. It just, it wasn't a particular strong memory. No one really offered that up in my conversations with them. But I, I didn't, I did notice again, uh, through a lot of the, the kind of found footage and, and shared footage that, that I, that I uh, worked through in putting the film together, that there were a lot of small food stands. It was very much like a, like a music festival. Yeah. Um, I don't really know how much they actually ate. I think there was a fair bit of drinking going on. Uh, if you look closely, I think that there, that the, the 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 beers are are well known brand. I'm not gonna <laughs> I'm not gonna repeat what the brand are, which is interesting given uh, where that was happening and that most of the people there were underage, uh, or a good portion were underage at least. <laughs> um, so there's there's that there's that. You know, it, it was a big party for sure. I don't think people slept very much, and and I think there was a lot of uh, there was a lot of sex as well. Um, so you know, it was it was a real kind of coming of age experience if you will for 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 a lot of the delegates um yeah yeah and and I, it's a good thing that they had that demonstration with the microphone uh, that that one of the organizers uh, had 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 uh, ventured to to put together I'll I'll let the people who are listening to Cold War conversations watch the movie and they'll they'll get a better sense of that uh, it, it certainly, though, I, I think was apropos in terms of some of that activity. Now, one of the things that really I loved about the, the movie, Greg, was the fact that you focused on five or six people who were effectively the, the main players, the cast of players for this, this doc. How did you select those particular individuals? Was it difficult to track them down? Or were they willing participants once you contacted them? 
Mm-hmm. It took a while to track people down. I wanted to have a good um, a good spread of of people, experiences, and, and backgrounds. I wanted a diversity of, of of voices. I wanted a diversity of opinions um, because obviously it's um, if you were if uh, you were to tell people that you went to the DPRK or North Korea today, people might be suspicious of you and. You know, people did this when they were 20, uh, 20, some teenagers. So so some people I approached um, were very hesitant. Um, They they were in jobs where they felt that maybe (laughs) that they would be looked upon with some suspicion, um, perhaps rightly or wrongly, um, wrongly in my opinion. But but I I started I started with the people that I knew. I started at least pre-interviewing with the people that I knew from when I was a, uh, a student activist. But my producer, the producer that I was working with at the time, at the beginning of the film at least, he said, no, I don't, I don't think you should start with what you know, Greg. You should start with one of the main organizers, uh, people that you haven't met. And so I, st- I ended up starting with, and for other reasons as well, um, the uh, the organ- organizer who was associated with the Young Communist League with the Canadian Communist Party, and his name is Chris Fraser. Um, and uh, I did. I, I don't think I knew that he was the organizer for a while, or even when I went to or- went to interview him. But he was quite a, a captivating uh, character. And for the, those folks who I hope see the film, they'll see that the film really kind of um, is really told through his experience, both in the past and in the in the present day as well. Um, but as an organizer, as one of one of two or three chief organizers, he was able to point me to other people as well, people who I hadn't tracked down uh, to talk about the uh, the inside politics. Um, of all the different uh, delegation groups, the mechanics of how the whole thing uh, worked, and many other uh, components that uh, that uh, that are in the film as well. But that raises an interesting question. Uh, just when you mentioned that Chris had put you in touch with some of the other folks or pointed you in the right direction, have they kept in touch with each other over the years? Have they has the network that they had perhaps uh, formed in 1989 uh, stood the test of time? I don't think they're closely in touch, but they all know each other very well. I think that they were in touch for a number of years afterwards. I'm going to say about ten years afterwards, um, and I know a number of them kind of bump into each other now and again. Um, and as someone who was kind of on, on the somewhat involved in student politics at the time, I would say, you know, 95% of the people that I approached almost immediately uh, trusted me um, and were quite excited about, about telling the story. I only had one participant, um, and I don't want to use their name, who in, in the film was, was a little hesitant. I had one person pull out. I had uh, uh, two or three people um, uh, kind of metaphorically slam the phone down on me, so to speak. Like, no, I don't want to have anything to do with this. Um, so, <laughs> but ultimately, I think uh, people were 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 quite excited. Were very open with me about their experiences and their confusion. 
um, both when they were there and 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 their confusion about whether how they were feeling about it in the present tense uh, as well, whether or not their participation was a good thing or not, whether or not the Canada sending a delegation was a good thing or not. All those things are were kind of up for grabs, and I think were 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 well represented in the in the film as well. And, and you touch on something there that I, I would really like to explore. And, and that was as you're watching the documentary and you're listening to the stories that are being described over some of the footage, over some of the photos. I got a sense that once they were on the ground, that a number of the delegates were a little bit uneasy. They were a little bit uncomfortable. I, I believe one mentioned that they were concerned. They were starting to realize that perhaps maybe they were part of a broader propaganda experiment for a broader pro- propaganda tool. Mm-hmm. Did you get that same sense as well, Greg, as you were interviewing the the various people for the film? Very much so. I, I think, I don't think there was a single person I interviewed who didn't know that after they had arrived uh, in Pyongyang, that uh, they were there to be shown off that there were, that there was yet another agenda like earlier we were talking about the agendas from the Canadian delegation well there were multiple agendas going on in uh, in the DPRK at the festival of course uh, there are many others that we don't even have time to get into now there was a of course a soviet or a glasnost and a uh, agenda that was going on. Uh, there was the, of course, the uh, the Olympic agenda on the on the penin- the Korean Peninsula as well. Uh, but yeah, I think before they went there, there was like, well, sure, well, I think there was a certain kind of a naive kind of left solidarity. Yes, we should we should go. Why shouldn't we go? Um, we don't know a lot about what's going on at the time. There wasn't as much of a if demonization is maybe that's a bit of a strong word, but there certainly is some very heavy criticism and deep, deep suspicion, if not fear of, of uh, the DPRK uh, in Canada and from the West today for many reasons. Um, But at the time it wasn't as pronounced. Um, It was, it was still there for sure. I think it was, it was more of a, before they left, it was more like a, what's curiosity, a deep curiosity. But yes, absolutely, you're right, Peter. When they when they arrived, they thought they thought they were going there to participate in a festival. That they were going to go there and witness a show and participate in a big show, if you will. And then, uh, as I said before, they all soon realized that they were on show as much as they were there to watch a show unfold. What were some of the stories in particular you heard that marked you the most, that you found the most impactful from the delegates who were attending the festival in Pyongyang? Much of this didn't make it into the film, but and there, there are other films that document this better. But there were participants from, there was a delegation sent, a very small delegation sent from South Korea. Um, and one of the Canadian delegates became very uh, involved in the politics around the South Korean delegation's participation in the North. Uh, the South Korean state, of course, and government were very unhappy that uh, that students from the South had gone to the North. 
Um, and they made it very clear that they were going to face a very s- serious repercussions upon returning to South Korea. So a number of, uh, of, uh, of the Canadian delegates, and, and one in particular who was in the film, uh, he, he was one of the, the catalysts and participants of a, of, a, of, a, of a walk that was organized, a peace walk. Uh, meant to support and and work uh, stand in solidarity with some of the with the North Koreans, but also the South Korean students who were really going out on a limb, who were really uh, their agenda was was one of really trying to foster a, a more genuine, open ended conversation about reunification and peace on the peninsula and denuclearization of the of the peninsula as well. So that's a story that unfortunately I wasn't able to really, really tell fully, or, or even in, in a small part. But that that really uh, stuck out for me. I think it it also stuck out for me because it it's an ongoing story. It's a sad story. It's a story yeah. that continues. It's an there's no resolution. Um, but I I think what I tr- I tried to capture in the film is is the long-term impact that this festival had on the Canadian delegation. I think I could certainly go on at length and talk about how, in fact, it did have a very important impact in South Korea. And I heard many stories to that effect when I screened the film a couple of years ago at the DMZ Film Festival in south korea literally a rock's throw from the uh, from the border um but 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 yeah i think f- for me i was the stories that were told were ones that um that went through the decades right that the impact of 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 the the confusion the naivete the uh the uncertainty, um, the the participation, the feeling that the delegates were participating on something that was uh, representing uh, what was happening in the world at that time. It was like a world stage, world defining event, the kind of the end of the Cold War, at least how they thought of it at, at the time. I think is something that has really stuck with all the delegates and, and has really stuck with me as well. And again, unfortunately, the 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 kicker to all that is that, as I said before, that the Korean Peninsula remains caught in the Cold War, even though at the time the Canadian delegation were really hoping, uh, many of them, if not all of them, were hoping that this was one of many events, if you will, that was happening in, uh, in um, communist countries around the world that was leading to an, uh, a, a, an, an op- opportunities for peace and, and uh, more openness uh, to, uh, to the West. Yeah. It, it was interesting when you interviewed all the different characters or all the different participants in the documentary about what it was like coming home. And there was one gentleman in particular that really struck me when he said he came back and it was like for the first three weeks it was like it, it was surreal it was, it was a dream and he wouldn't talk about it to anybody and then finally he said to his parents okay i'm ready to talk about this now <laughs> and it, it struck me that that really was 
quite almost a life altering experience that, that they all had participated in and each one of them processed it differently. And, you know, even down to a, a personal level, I, I thought it was great. And one of the happy good news stories was that there was one lady who actually met somebody that she married on the trip, which I, I thought was wonderful as well. Talk about life altering experiences. And I think I think she she talks about how at their wedding they named each of the tables at their wedding reception for cities that were significant in their lives. Yeah. Um, and they put uh, a number of their, their friends at the Pyongyang table. The investment bankers at the Pyongyang table. I've been to their house on a number of occasions. And yeah, you look around and they have a lovely family, a lovely home and uh, great careers and everything. You think, yeah, this all, this all began, this all began in the, <laughs> in the DPRK. It's, there are a lot of firsts there, as I alluded to before, a lot of uh, uh, first sexual experiences, first drinking parties, first, uh, uh, I don't know how to explain, even it's even now I have a hard time finding the words to explain that space for them, right? Um, because they didn't go there to party, they didn't go there to find their husbands or their partners or to, to get inebriated, right? I think they went there because they they felt that it was important and that there was that feeling that um, we need to go as a delegation. We need to represent Canada. We can play a role in how the the world is unfolding, how the world is, is changing. And they did. And they did play a part at the festival. They were significant. They made a significant contribution to the, the conversation and the debates that were ongoing at the festival in 1989. One one of the things that really struck me, or one of the things that I thought was fascinating about the Canadian delegation was the fact that there was a certain point where they felt that they needed to make a statement about what was happening in China in terms of the student repression that was going on in 1989, Tiananmen Square specifically. I think for me that was probably the the point of tension in the movie that that really hit home the most, and it's one of those ones where you find yourself gripping the side of the chair because you, you're not sure what's going to happen next. Greg, can you talk a little bit about what happened and and how when you were interviewing the delegates they recollected it? What were there any particular nuances that that came back to them, especially about what that episode entailed? In 1989, the summer of 1989, um, when the when the, the news reports first started to come out, a, a few of which I I use in uh, in the film, that there were mass demonstrations led largely by students in the streets of Beijing and other places around China. There was a there was a real kind of call to arms uh, in Canada as well. Uh, I remember participating in some of those uh, those protests uh, in Vancouver, uh, but those protests happened uh, across the country, and they were very emotional. They were very emotional. Um, 1989 was was uh, was uh, the summer of 1989. To hear that that your peers were being uh, shot at um, and killed in the streets, it, it was deeply shocking. I think for for Canadian students, I think we were very we led a very sheltered life in Canada. I think there were many things that we we 
uh, deeply and the and the delegates deeply believed in around accessibility, uh, the importance of the education, open education, liberal education, and so on. But this was on a, an entirely different register, right? So when uh, when the delegation arrived at the festival, there were all people were already intensely politicized and shocked. People, meaning the delegates from around the world, were quite shocked uh, about what had happened, and so that led to a, a series of conversations that many went well into the night about how uh, and, and to what extent that different delegations uh, coming together could express their solidarity with students in China. Um, it, there was a Chinese delegation that that went to uh, Pyongyang, but it had it, it, it had been recycled a few times, um, and they weren't um, uh, student activists like like had come from Canada and in other countries around the world. So again, over many over many uh, dinners and drinks and evenings, well into the night, they a number of uh, countries led by uh, Scandinavian and and uh, delegations and um, Canada organized uh, an event. Um, but of course, there was much consternation on the part of the of the organizers of the Canadian delegates and the delegates themselves, because uh, as we know, um, North Korea has very close ties with China. They re- received funding, and they continue to receive very important uh, 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 funding from from the Chinese state. So there was a real balance that needed to 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 happen. The Canadian delegation didn't want to didn't want to necessarily offend uh, the, the the host country, but they couldn't ignore what had happened that summer. So what what ensued was, uh, I guess the the phrase often used is kind of like a, a, a cat and mouse game between uh, different de- delegates, organizers uh, that were. Uh, that were on the ground at the festival trying to organize an event in different agents from the, from the North Korean government, uh, security agents. And it became quite farcical, the, the, the lengths to which um, the, the, the security apparatus in North Korea tried to thwart the efforts of, uh, of a number of delegations, including a number of uh, the Canadian delegates, to try to make sure that the event wouldn't happen. But it did go forward, and there was a, there was a, a rally and a, and a celebration, and a speaker from, I believe, from Hong Kong was able to 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 to, to stand on stage and, and and talk about what was going on uh, still in China. So so that. That event really, really kind of marked me when I first heard about it. And when I heard about it, of course, kind of 25, 30 years later, when I made the film. And it just strikes me that it's it's such a huge contrast to a lot of the, the politics that we're seeing around, um, uh, the campus politics that we're seeing around China now, that there's a, there's a real, this is myself talking, this is my own uh, opinion, but there's a real hesitancy to uh, to critique uh, uh, China uh, Chinese policies on a number of issues um, and I think that's that that that's a, a long-lasting debate that's a that's a debate that that needs to go on and I think that um, if people saw the film if, and again I encourage people to, to view the film they'll see just how remarkably different 
the the relationship between Canada and China was, at least to the eyes and to the the voices and the memories of the people that are that are uh, that were in the Canadian delegation in 1989. And thinking about those delegates that attended in 1989, and thinking about the ones that you interviewed, did you find that? there was any difference in their world outlook in terms of who they are today versus who they were perhaps back in 1989 when they attended as young, many of them were leftist idealists. Have they evolved in their, their worldview and their thinking, even professions that you would associate uh, perhaps with uh, what their activities were in the late 1980s versus where they are today? I, I wish I could say people change, <laughs> but uh, actually, no, uh, there, there's slight, there's slight differences. But what really struck me when I, when I went to these different locations around, um, around, you know, in the UK and in the United States and Canada, when I met with uh, former delegates is that they, many of them, if not all of them still have a very strong sense of social justice and issue and around questions of, international solidarity um one of the delegates uh, i met him in his office he had posters up from a festival he went well, not a festival a meeting he went to in moscow in 1987 1988 um i would say that uh you know in, in addition to the one indigenous member i interviewed at least two or three other delegates were heavily involved in advocating for indigenous rights in Canada. Well, that was quite interesting. Um, there were some there was small differences, I guess. Uh, one delegate uh, probably is, uh, sees themselves more as a, as, a, as, as a centrist and has been involved in you know, uh, the financial world. Another uh, delegate who was very strongly critical of China is, is much less so now. Um, but by and large, I was really struck that they are all deeply, deeply committed, socially committed individuals. Yeah. Your film has been featured at a number of different festivals. And if anybody visits the website, they'll be able to see some of the logos. Very impressive. You mentioned the DMZ Festival as, as an example. Since it's been screened when it came out a few years ago, generally speaking, what's the reaction been like? Well, let, let me say first, I, I was disappointed it didn't screen enough in Canada. What's struck me, especially for a film called The Canadian Delegation, um, <laughs> I just thought, oh, wow, you know, I'm, it's only going to show in Canada, right? Like, no one in the States is ever going to want to see it. <laughs> you know, all, all these kind of, you know, kind of cliched expectations were, you know, banging around in my head. But it was, it was very well received in it, um, internationally. Um, it screened almost uh, exclusively, I would say, internationally. Um, and I think it did so because it is a bit of a generational film. And it's a film about uh, social activists. And I think that festivals that had film fest documentary film festivals that had programmers uh, and decision makers on there that were either or either my age or found the discussions about social activism and international forms of social activism and cold war politics those are the places that the film screened so it screened in um it first screened in in amsterdam 
And I, it was kind of like a, you know, people were just kind of dumbfounded. And again, it's not, it, it's a, it's an unknown history. And when people saw the scale of the event, I think just the, the pure scale of the event, as I alluded to earlier, was it, it looked like when you see the, the film, it looks like the Olympics, right? The size of the event itself and the scale of it and the, the parades, the buildings, the celebrations and whatnot, the imagery, the amount of money that went into it. Um, so, so I think that there was just this bewilderment of like, where did this come from? Um, there was there, there was some kind of uh, initially there was it was did this really happen like you know and at, at first I think people didn't really believe that it actually happened and that was it was kind of a fake documentary or something but I think people were really were really interested in knowing either one or two things usually uh, usually uh, they wanted to know more about the event itself and the politics around it or they were kind of more nerdy film festival people and they, they had questions about like, how did you ever get that footage from North Korea? Mm -hmm. uh, it was either one or the other, right? In South Africa, the film sc screened three times in South Africa, twice to uh, audiences that were very much uh, steeped in, uh, in the anti-apartheid era. Yeah. And there was a very strong, uh, ANC youth delegate in 1989, very important time for South Africa, of course, uh, coming to uh, um, almost uh, what within a few months before of the end of the apartheid state and the release of Nelson Mandela. Just an incredible, you know, point in the world's history, of course, right? It's happened in early uh, 1990, and um, and so they were very much they were very much interested in. In, in the participation, the relationship between Canada, South Africa, the solidarity politics that, uh, that, that led to good things happening, uh, the end of uh, apartheid in their country. When I've uh, screened it in, in Canada, it's been, I think, um, it's been more youthful audiences, more kind of reflecting upon um, what's changed and what hasn't changed. And I think in a kind of an appreciation for some pioneers, frankly, some on the part of, particularly on the part of kind of the left and social activists, there are people who were involved in that fe in that festival who were on film, who were were leaders uh, in uh, in gay rights, for example, LGBTQ uh, uh, gay rights in Canada, and so and some of the footage of that, some of those stories are, are told very forcefully and. Uh, emotionally in the film as well has uh, this is the million dollar question i've got to ask it has the dprk commented on the film <laughs> uh not that not that i know like i like i said it it did screen in uh south korea um uh and i was <laughs> well, when I when I, maybe if I, I'll, I'll say just quickly when I when I was going there, I thought actually that literally I'd you know flown for whatever sixteen hours. It was not unlike that kind of <laughs> flight almost that the delegation went on. And I showed up and I was confused and jet lagged, and I had to go straight from landing to the opening ceremonies of the of the the, the film festival. Um, and I thought it was I thought it was in downtown Seoul, which is where I booked a. A hotel but of course it wasn't it was literally 
at the border with the north, which so it was about 10 o'clock at night. I hadn't slept for, you know, almost two days and I'm driving in in a taxi going north and literally the signs are saying like Pyongyang and I'm thinking, where am I going? And I'm also going further and further away from my my bed, which is really where I wanted to be, right? Anyway, so I I was really all that to say that it was quite an event to get there. Uh, uh, But I wasn't, I was nervous about how it was going to be received, and and I was really excited when people approached me after the end of the screening, screened three times, and people talked about, uh, the audience said, we loved your film because it wasn't, it's not a typical DPRK film made by a Western filmmaker, which is, if I can sum it up, um, look at this strange place. <laughs> look at these funny people. Oh my God, these are dangerous people, right? And 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 there are, there are important reasons to behind some of those I think approaches, right? But that is almost a uniform approach to storytelling again from Westerners when they go to the uh, the North North Korea. My film was about how the North changed a group of Canadians, confronted a, a group of Canadians their their their, their values their their, their naivete, a bunch of things, um, their futures, confronted their futures. And I think, I think that the audiences there really appreciated the kind of more nuanced conversation that came out of that in the film rather than a kind of a finger-pointing kind of a film, if I can use that expression. But no, I, 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 uh, I, I don't think I would probably travel to the DPRK to screen it. There's probably a few too many things that wouldn't make it past the the uh, film's uh, censor there. I probably wouldn't screen the film. I wouldn't screen the film in China either because there's a, there's a sequence in there that of Tiananmen Square massacre that would not would not go over well and I would not ever remove that uh, to to screen that that film. I wouldn't remove anything from that film. Uh, so so there it is. Well, I'm not sure uh, if we'll ever have a a, a film reviewer <laughs> or official uh, comment from from the north on on the Canadian delegation. So I said in the last question for you, this was the million dollar question. This will be the two million dollar question, <laughs> Greg. Where can the Cold War conversations listenership find your movie? How can they watch this amazing documentary? It is. Uh, it's on the internet. It's on a. A film platform called Vimeo, V-I-M-E-O, and so if your listeners just go to Vimeo and search the Canadian delegation, it'll pop up. It's a very small uh, screening fee. I believe it's about four dollars, and the 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 money is going to help support my next film. Um, but yeah, just uh, just Google or Google the Canadian delegation and my name, Greg Elmer. And uh, and you'll be directed to the film, um, and it's not what it's not what you're going to expect. I'll just say that, <laughs> and it's well worth four dollars. <laughs> it it honestly is probably one of the most provocative documentaries I've seen in quite a long time. Make sure you visit the episode page on our website where there's videos of the festival, links to the trailer of Greg's film, and links to see the full length version. Now, this podcast would not exist without our financial supporters, and I want to thank one and all of them for their generous support. 
If you want to help us, just go to coldwarconversations.com slash donate for more information. And you can also join our Facebook group where listeners just like you continue the Cold War conversation. Thanks very much for listening. It is really appreciated. Goodbye. Not enjoying the ads? Well, you can avoid them by going to coldwarconversations.com slash donate. By becoming a monthly or annual supporter, you'll enjoy ad-free listening, become a part of our community, receive the sought-after Cold War Conversations drinks coaster, and bask in the warm glow of knowing that you're helping to preserve Cold War history. Just go to coldwarconversations.com slash donate for more information.